Well, Brent is gay, and Kaylin's gay, and Clark is gay, and Ryan's gay, and Adam's gay. It's homo superior. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, Find a tune somewhere, baby. Hey, welcome to another amazing homo superior creator crush. I'm Kaylin Batia, and co-hosting with me today is our very own scream queen, Adam Kasari. Hi, Adam. Hello. Hi. So happy to be here. I'm working, doing my voice lessons right now. <laughs> oh, well, great. Uh, so Creator Crush is an interview series where we chat with our favorite comic book creators, learning more about their work, their thoughts on the industry, and what makes them so darn special. Also, it's fitting for October that we're doing a spookier and nerdier Creator Crush. Yup, it's right. It's a sequel, y'all. Steve Fox, Steve Fox is back, little homos. And if you didn't listen to our first interview with Steve, we'll do a quick little recap. He wrote X-Men House of 92. He wrote the very sexy and erotic Cheater Code. He co-wrote Party and Pray and Rainbow Bridge with Steve Orlando. You should go read those books if you haven't already. And unless you've been living under a bridge, you know that he's one of the architects of The Fall of X, uh, currently writing one of our recent faves, Dark X-Men. He co-created the absolutely fabulous Web Weaver, and he's continuing his horror journey with the queer and creepy All Eight Eyes. Hi, Steve. Welcome back to Homo Superior. Hello, thank you for having me. And I am also gay. <laughs> finish the one song. That's right. We got us. We should start adding on the creator crushes. And then we can, you know, just and Steve is gay and so and so straight. And we don't know this person's sexuality because we haven't <laughs> confirmed it before we started the podcast. We're not making any assumptions. Assumptions, exactly. Everyone's choice is their own. They can make whenever they want. <laughs> um no but welcome back you have had you have had a very busy year i feel like we have so much new stuff to talk to you about how's how's everything going like what's going on in your life what's like new news you want to talk about before we jump in everything's going well honestly i just kind of work a lot i'm <laughs> very <laughs> grateful to work a lot it's it's very surreal um i it the new car smell of doing this hasn't worn off you know uh and each each new project I get to do at Marvel or at other publishers feels very exciting. I'm very grateful for it each time. I'm not taking anything anything for granted. Let's put it that way. Um, but no, it's it's a fun juncture because Dark X Men is you know nearly halfway through, and I've got kind of more Marvel work unannounced than I've got announced. So that's kind of a, a cool cool pivot point to be at in my career. Uh, and then the other. You know, I work a lot with James Tynan. I'm his editor on his uh, image books. And we just announced The Deviant, which is launching next month, uh, which is a, a queer uh, or a gay killer uh, story. Uh, and we have World Tree. So, you know, staying busy. I'm starting to ramble a bit because uh, I'm just thinking about all the things I'm working on and all yeah, the deadlines I've got. Is, uh, part of our <laughs> podcast. So you're fitting right in. We yes. tend to run on a lot. So great. Love um, that. But yeah, let's dive, you know, let's just kind of get into it then, you know, Dark X-Men. I'm sad to hear you say, and we already knew this, that it's kind of halfway or nearly halfway over because A, it's an excellent book, and B, this fall of X, I could just see it go on for quite some time because it's actually overall as an arc, we've talked a lot about it a lot, that we were really enjoying it and all the moves. But, you know, while we're assuming everyone listening is already following this since, you know, we're an X-Men podcast for fuck's sakes, but we'd love for you to just maybe pitch the book to our listeners, you know, if you think about Dark X-Men, to make it interesting, maybe make it, try to give us like an 80s horror movie trailer vibe to it. Can you do anything fun to, to jazz oh up gosh. the pitch? Oh my gosh. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Let's start Alex, this this October. <laughs> this October, Alex. There Summers, you go. Perfect. Alex Summers thought he was in for a heroic ride when he joined the X Men. Little did he know that his crush on a demonic queen would mean his end in Dark X Men from Steve <laughs> Fox and Jonas Sharf with Frank Martin. Uh, no, I mean it's it's gothic horror X Men. That's really like the fastest way to put it. Um, it's not the first time there's been a dark X-Men book, but it's the first time that the angle was make it creepy, make it horrific. So I was super excited to get tapped for it. And the real pitch, I think, for most X-Men readers is that Madeline Pryor has her own X-Men team, which we've never really seen before. Um, Madeline Pryor, of course, has had a very interesting arc over the last 40 years. Uh, but I think Dark Web, the Spider-Man crossover from last year, really put her in a new position that we've never seen before where she is not really um chasing fulfillment in the same way she kind of got what she wanted from Jean Grey and she finally found herself in a more autonomous more in control position and then the world went to hell for mutants <laughs> so as soon as Maddie gets her feet under her the rug gets ripped out and uh she's not someone to take that lying down so we've got quite a bloodbath coming up I, I mentioned elsewhere when we started doing Dark X-Men, Jonas and I, um, you know, we put in horrific elements from the jump, but there were a couple things in the first couple issues where our editors were like, oh, you know, I don't think standards and practices will allow this through. Let's find a different way to frame it. Hmm. And then I got to see Russell's page from the gala where the X-Men team gets squashed by <laughs> Nimrod. Yeah. <laughs> and I sent it straight to Jordan and Lauren. and I was like, we are going grosser. <laughs> like, <laughs> If this can get through, if I can see Prodigy's intestines and like, you know, <laughs> Dazzler getting blown in half, like we're going grosser for, so issues three to five, uh, we really pump up Even the more. Yes. Well, and you've got a lot going on in the first two issues already, because you've got, you know, like a major skeletal, almost archangel at the, a couple of spoilers if you haven't read <laughs> the most recent issues, but yeah, you're, it feels like you're jumping into that. The horror, meant, horror element already was that um i assume that was like a major part of the pitch but you talked about maybe marvel even approaching you so just talk about how you got into this this work and what inspired you to to want to knock this out yeah i mean i've been really lucky that jordan white uh you know the head of the x-men group he's fostered my career at marvel uh he brought me on to do x-men 92 house of 92 because that was Kind of a fun, tongue-in-cheek, slightly comedic story. So he knew from Spider-Ham I'd be a good fit for that. And then he gave me opportunities to do X-Men Unlimited on the digital app and then the X-Men Annual with Firestar. Right. And for each of those, he was like, oh, you know, this one's in continuity. Let's see what you can do in continuity. This mm. one's a little more serious. Let's see what you would do without as much of a humorous angle. And he knows I do horror and things like Razor Blades and, and Party and Prey. So Dark X-Men, he approached me saying... Madeline Pryor, Havoc, Horror. And that's yeah. really all it started with. So that. that's that's a great a great follow-up to that. Is so you knew Maddie and and Alex were gonna be like the you know the main characters. Did you get to pick like the others like Emplate and Azazel and uh Maggot? And I feel like they're like the some of the favorite gremlins of like X-Men <laughs> uh fans over the years. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard because Kieran wanted to use Azazel, Al Ewing wanted to use Azazel, Jerry wanted to use Azazel, everyone wanted Azazel. He was very popular. No, I'm lying. No one wanted Azazel. Oh, I was going to no, say, I, you almost, you almost <laughs> had me. <laughs> no, it was not a fight to get Azazel. Um, yeah, I, I did just get it with, with Havoc and Maddie, and also um, 
Jordan told me C.B. Sobolski thinks it would be fun if I could use Albert, the Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't a mandate, but you know, if the editor in chief thinks something would be fun, you should probably <laughs> probably find a way yeah, to right. do that. Voluntold um, to maybe have this idea. For yeah, <laughs> doesn't doesn't hurt to say. You know what? That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I love the the Larry Hama, Mark Silvestri era of Wolverine, so it wasn't exactly twisting my arm to get Albert in there. Um, but no, I went away and I really wanted to come up with the most monstrous cast possible because the X-Men have a long history of villains, uh, and I'm doing air quotes here, uh, who crossed the line for the mutant cause. You know, e- even long before Krakoa, Sabretooth, Mystique, Magneto, like they've all done what we would call heroic things at times. Um, so I really wanted characters who would not. You know, mm. nothing's going to the dice are not going to fall so that Implate wants to be an X-Man. You know, <laughs> Zazel's not going to put other people's needs before his own. Right. Um, so it was really a matter of trying to assemble a group of, of monsters and misfits and show a type of X-Team that you wouldn't see under any other scenario. Uh, and then the only other character who ended up kind of getting handed to me was Gambit, uh, because we do a character draft where we all come together to make sure that um, no one's you know, there's no struggle over where a character's going to land, but also that all the major characters are accounted for. And we realized no one had a Gambit plan and, and Jerry mm. thought he'd make a good fit for Dark X-Men. And I was really thrilled to take him um, because one, he's the only character that in X-Men 92, House of 92, I often kind of forgot he was there. Mm. Like there just wasn't a lot to do with him in that book. It was a big right. cast. And I was like, oh man, I love Gambit, but I just don't feel like you know, you got a couple fight scenes in and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd already asked for Carmen Cruz, who at that point was going by gimmick um, from Children of the Atom. And her first costume in Children of the Atom was Gambit cosplay. Gambit was right. who, who helped inspire her to be a hero, but they'd never been on panel together. So I was really excited to get to pair them up. Um, and Gambit ended up being kind of the moral center of the book, which should tell you how far the, uh, the moral <laughs> relativity has shifted in Dark X-Men that Gambit's the upstanding good guy. Yeah. So hey. um, as a follow-up to that, um, you know, uh, you you mentioned, uh, I love the pun, like the luck of the draw, like with Gambit, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you kind of picked that card. How much of like coordination uh, are y'all doing in Fall of X right now? It feels like, you know, the resistance is sort of scattered. Like there's like little splinter cells happening of like, you know, Alpha Flight, Dark X-Men, what Jerry's doing in the main book, you know, what Kieran's doing in Immortal, um, and so on and so forth. How are y'all coordinating all this, um, you know, this era? It's very tightly knit. I mean, we, we're we on a Slack together, so we're able to bounce things back and forth at all times, which is really helpful. We have bi-weekly meetings, you know, the, editor, the editors help oversee everything, but it's been the most collaborative writing experience I've ever had in the industry. Uh, you know, I'm working on things and I'm sure we'll get to it, but like X-Men Unlimited, you know, Steve and I sat down and, and had multiple meetings with Jerry to make sure we were going to pick up the Sunfire story and leave it where it needed to go. You know, other things that I can't talk about yet, like I've coordinated with Kieran and Al. So it's been a very tightly knit experience. Um, and I would say the Slack is like such a fun lifeline because we mm-hmm. can just drop drop questions and, you know, at any time of like, oh, did anyone show feral somewhere like can i use her in a scene or is she claimed stuff like that just just helps the world feel a little more connected and you'll see some of that actually some of the characters in dark x-men number one when you see like the big cameo spread of who's taken up residence in the limbo embassy some of those characters 
appear in Astonishing Iceman and in Uncanny Spider-Man. And we kind of like moved them throughout the line by coordinating digitally. Please tell me that Fantasia just keeps appearing everywhere throughout the entire, (laughs) the amount of fandom that that character has for just having a really sick design is is highly, uh, I I ascribe to, to be, have that level of fandom for myself. I know. I wish I had anticipated how many uh, Eileen stands there were out there because that is her only appearance. Um, but the upside of that is she doesn't die horribly, which cannot be said for everyone else on that spread. So give a little, take a little. <laughs> I love it. Well, so it's actually a good kind of click through is, you know, especially like you mentioned that big splash page and then much of the backup story in the first issue. We There's so many different people at the Limbo Limbo Embassy and typically on our podcast or any of our stuff, we refer to them as, you know, the X-Men gremlins of everyone's (laughs) got their favorite gremlin. Everybody wants to root for this nobody that was on one page because they looked cool. You know, we were at the Uncanny Experience and Soft Serve was there and we're like, that's an incredible costume, (laughs) such an amazing reference. And like, but who the fuck would know mostly who that is? Not a whole lot. But question is, you know, who are some of your favorite uh, gremlins and have you been able to really feature them yourself or is there like ones you're really waiting to kind of uh, get into play? Yeah. So because the first project I did was X-Men 92, House of 92, where, you know, I I didn't have to coordinate with anybody. Like I had free reign in this pocket (laughs) reality. Uh, I really made a point to include like every possible cameo that made sense for 1992 um, so people like Sienna Blaze has always been one of my favorite mm, random oh yeah. ones. Yeah. Uh, and it's so list. funny. She's appeared so infrequently that if you Google Sienna Blaze, one of like the top 10 results is her getting cut in half in X-Men 92. Like, cause there's just not, you know, she's appeared in like 15 comic books. Um, aside from the time she had an intercompany crossover in the first version of Exiles, you can go Google that. Oh my maybe. gosh weird rabbit hole all you um, sienna fans hear that rush out now <laughs> and find that crossover uh but yeah she's one of them um oh one that i have not had a chance to use yet and who almost got to be on dark x-men was jesse bedlam from mm. um like the counter x era whoa um, yeah that's when i started reading like month to month and i always felt like you know the x-men line doesn't have as many prominent black male characters as it could and Jesse was always really cool to me. Um, but when I brought him up, Jordan said, who? <laughs> <laughs> Which was very funny. Um, and the cast was just getting so large anyway. He, you know, he ended up not get, making the cut. But yeah. I hope before I'm done to include him, you know, somehow, just so people know he exists. Um, Grizz- Grizzly's another one. I Oh, yeah. We talk about I, him pretty often. Yeah, I accidentally had an impact on him, too, because I made a gay joke about him being a bear in X-Men 92, and now he shows up on some lists of queer characters, despite that absolutely not being canon in any way. Uh, Yeah, no, one of the big correlations for me is if they had a Toy Biz action figure, that was so formative to me as a kid. So there are a lot of, like... there's Your big Highland stand, right? Who? A big Highland stand. Oh, I think it's in Highland. you, you can always find Kylan, the, the Kylan action figure was always the one left at the toy stores because nobody wanted to buy him. At I least owned in my it experience. and I hated it because I was like, Who's this, like <laughs> why does he look like a chimpanzee? Who is it? Right. Now, having read the Alan Davis run, I do like Kylan. Yeah. Um, 
there's a character named Comcast, and I forget they changed his name in the comics because of <laughs> Comcast. Yeah, but I always thought he was really cool. <laughs> and it's like he's a nobody. Oh, Bonebreaker, I always yeah. thought he was incredibly yeah. cool because of the toy and uh, uh switchback or something he's like a, a deadpool villain he's got like the, i'm doing this because the action figure has um extendable arms <laughs> like these <laughs> are not important characters i just thought they were because they had toys we just uh reread what is it for our 300th episode read uncanny 300 and then what Ooh. fitzroy's like main you know fighters were there and there was the one uh person who had like the kinetic whip and i, I forget their fucking name, like yes Kenyaka. exactly and I and it's so funny you mentioned what you just said about like oh well you know they had a figure so they had to be like super cool literally the exact same like my brain went through that exact same thought process of like that person's got to be so fucking amazing and then I later <laughs> like thirty years later find out they were pretty inconsequential to the yep. entire thing pretty much have never had a line they just show up but he's like one of the only acolytes who got a figure so his costume looked cool and unique yes. because you couldn't compare it to the other twenty yeah, that just right. have you know random of names like Kleinstock. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's jump into some of our social media questions. So from Twitter, we have a question from Murphy Alexander. Aside from the direct lyrical references you've already made in Dark X-Men number one and two, what Nick Cave lyric do you most associate with Alex Summers? Ooh, Murphy's been really engaged um, and has been posting really cool art inspired by the Dark X-Men cast and Nick Cave. Oh, wow. Um, so Nick Cave was kind of my soundtrack for Dark X-Men. Uh, it was the mood music that got me into this kind of like high gothic vibe. I can't listen to anything while I write, but I do listen to stuff to like get in the, the mood. Um, another song that I associated with Havoc was as I sat sadly by her side, which I think is a little self-explanatory. <laughs> um, there's also Orpheus's Liar is another Nick Cave song. I, I think you can map some of the Orpheus and Eurydice story onto Havoc, kind of both with Polaris and with Maddie. Um, his kind of doomed devotion to these powerful women who may be going through things that kind of don't involve Havoc one way or the other. Um, but he sticks by their side. And then uh, Nick Cave's later band, <clears throat> Grinder Man, has a song called Palaces of Montezuma, which is my favorite romantic song, period. I think it's like the greatest love song. Um, but it's kind of about like extending yourself well past your limit for someone you're devoted mm. to who, you know, may be hopelessly out of your league. And I, I kind of project some of that onto Hal uh, Alex and, and Maddie, even though I do I do genuinely write Maddie as if she loves and cares about Alex, too. I just don't think she is going to show it in the most affectionate or um, healthiest way. Mm -hmm. So it's so funny. Uh, we're talking about music uh, and related to Dark X-Men and Maddie being the main character. So uh, the rest of the guys in Homosphere know that I got into X-Men through Inferno uh like really started like being a collector so like maddie was a big part of it and also mm. paula abdul released her like like debut album and so what every time i would hear straight up i would think of madeline Pryor saying that to scott summers uh so like that music connection i don't know it just my brain just went there that's an amazing association um i thought you were gonna say because you know claremont named her after a musician from like a folk band maybe there, there's oh, a real yeah. there's a real madeline Pryor. Um, oh, okay he lifted the name from but i don't know that i've ever even heard that band it wasn't exactly mood music for 
a gothic yeah. horror book. Was it? It was Madeline Pryor and the Machine. I think is what the maybe. Name and I think it's spelled slightly differently. I think she spells it, it more like Madeline. Uh, um, but I do know he lifted it because there's also there's a. I think it's a classic X-Men backup, you know, when they did the additional backup stories. Yeah, 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 I love those stories. Where there's a child named Maddie in like a flashback. Um, and at the time it wasn't meant to be Maddie, but I think now it's kind of been retconned. That like, I, it's complicated. It, a lot of things about Maddie's history are complicated. <laughs> uh, well, we had another question from Twitter and this came from uh, Scary Kristen. That's their handle. Uh, you know, we learned in the last Rogue and Gambit miniseries, Remy's spending a bit too much time drowning sorrows with a bottle. Uh, you know, while he seems like a little too busy for vices currently, you know, <laughs> fighting Orcus, trying to survive in the Limbo Embassy, uh, do you kind of still see him in that place, like fighting those uh, proverbial demons versus mm. the literal demons in the Limbo <laughs> Embassy? No, I mean... Not to contradict that series, but I think that periods like that for Gambit are probably pretty brief. He's been through a lot in his life, and he's pulled himself up by his knee-high purple bootstraps a lot. So I think when he hits those lows, he probably rebounds pretty fast, especially with Rogue in his life to be there as you know his Southern Bell support. So I think I would like to think Remy gets it together pretty fast when he does stumble. Plus, he's got cats to take care of. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Who are alive and well off panel for the entirety of Dark X Men. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you no. for thank you for confirming that we have a lot yes. of cats fan cats no and cat lovers would be very upset. Very I really I really waffled about putting a line in there, but it just does not fit the tone of Dark X Men for <laughs> Remy to be like. Hey, Shere, are my are my kittens okay? <laughs> I don't know why he's French Canadian. Uh, I'm terrible with accents, but uh, the cats are fine. <laughs> uh, we've got a question from Chris KG on Twitter. Um, any Betsy or Rachel crumbs or nuggets that you know of? And then is there and you know, barring that, is there anything that you think you scripted that was elevated by uh, Jonas? So something that like you thought you saw. And then they kind of took it to the next level. Yeah. Uh, so Betsy and Rachel, I can say, because Jerry already said it, I am writing both of them <laughs> uh, in upcoming projects. Not the same project, um, but I'm, oh. not spl- I'm not splitting them up. So no one, you know, <laughs> sapphics calm down. They're fine. Uh, <laughs> what, what can I say? Because I know this Twitter user has been very eager to find out more about Betsy and Rachel. I can say that to be honest, Betsy's role in the project that I am working on has grown because I have seen how many fans are excited about her returning. So I would say that in the first conception, she was a supporting character and she has elevated uh, to a larger role because I think the demand is out there. There are lots of Betsy fans. And, you know, she's one of my favorite characters. She's been around for a very long time. She's held a lot of different roles, um, but I'm excited to continue her time as Captain Britain. Um, And as far as Rachel, uh, Rachel was already a very key part of a different project. And you're going to see both around the same time. That's about all I can say for now. (laughs) I do Um, like the the boosting that you would do for... um, what am I trying to say? I really, gosh, I feel like I lost my train of thought, but it was, I, 
my god i had a whole fucking joke and i completely lost it and i cut off your question so i'll let you keep going and i'll see if oh, i can remember it yeah well i also forgot the second oh oh anything just the jonas yeah there we go elevated yeah i think it's jonas but we've only ever talked over email i don't think it's jonas um okay he's from germany um i actually just got a package from him of original art from the book which is really exciting very cool um i mean it feels like a cop-out but kind of all of it like i was just massively grateful when jonas got attached to dark x-men because he does have that full horror side but he has delivered so much on the super heroics as well um i was really pumped when i started to see his havoc because i think he draws like a really fun hunky haunted alex summers um I was very excited about his sleazy take on Azazel. I joke that I have kind of like a trench coat brigade in the book because of Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maggot, Azazel, Havoc, and Implate. Um, so that was really fun. There's a fight scene in the next issue that involves Zero that um, I drew from a very strange inspiration and the way he brought it to the page was really fun. And I'll post about it when it comes out. It involves a He-Man action figure. Uh, <laughs> So to Ooh, see it better like be a Fisto. really, no, it's not, <laughs> that's a different, I already published cheater code. Um, the, the, to take such a goofy inspiration and end up with like such a fun fight scene was, was really exciting. Um, so yeah, I mean, it seems like a cop out, but a lot of the stuff that really surprised me script to page are in issues that haven't come out yet. So I can't say as much Spoiler, about them. just yet. So we were we reviewed uh, number two um, last week on our podcast, uh, or when you're listening two weeks ago. Uh, uh, but um, one of my favorite panels is just uh, Faint, uh, her new code name Faint, and Havoc talking and just kind of like bonding. And then like off screen, you see Madeline go to me, my X-Men, and they both Havoc and Faint just kind of roll their eyes a little bit. And it's such good fa like face work. I was like, oh my god, I just love I love the art so much. yeah i'm getting to work with jonas on another um small thing coming up and i was really excited to team back up Uh, he's just been such an awesome collaborator. And Frank Martin, too, the colorist. Yeah. Uh, you know, Frank has been so intentional and really engaged. Like, I, I've said it elsewhere, you know, there are some collaborators who, if the task is X, they will do X. And that's great. Like, you know, no complaints. The job is the job. Um, but there are people who get really excited and engaged and, like, want to go the extra level. And Frank has really been, like, all about this book and making really cool color choices and, like, communicating his inspirations for things to us. So it's been cool to get to see that process uh, come to life. And he worked on a lot of dark web, so it was also nice to have the continuity between the projects. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we're probably going to get into some spoilery territory here. So you can just cut us off at any point. Um, two questions. One is ours. One comes from Twitter. The first one is, if if you could, without getting too spoilery, could you cut like a teaser trailer for the latter half of the book that hasn't quite come out yet? Uh, and then the question we have from James on Twitter was... Um, Any post uh, fall of X stuff that you could even briefly talk about? If you can't, we understand. Yeah. Okay. So for the rest of the book, here's everything that happens. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Do it as I will. a nineties trailer now, Steve. <laughs> what is it like the movie phone guy? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say the first two issues are the quietest. So three through five really ratchet up. Like it's kind of nonstop bloodshed and action for the rest of the book. Um, Nice. the bodies start dropping. 
the Banff dragon jumps into action. Explosions in this next issue, potentially of <laughs> flesh. Uh, we're going to get to see some more rescues and rescue attempts. Uh, a very important cameo for me, one of my favorite characters. Um, and also uh, Chasm, who I also love. Um, mm-hmm. But that, you know, that cameo is already the covers out. So, yeah. you know, that's that's not a huge surprise. Um, but Chasm's coming up. And then we're going to see the showdown we've been building to Madeline Pryor versus Madeline Pryor. And uh, everyone's stuck in the middle of that. So good luck to anyone in their direct line of sight. Um, as for post fall of X plans, I mean, yeah, like I said, Jerry kind of blew the surprise. So I am working on things that have not come out yet and have not been announced yet. Um, you will see me both digitally and in print in uh, spring 2024 uh, on a couple different things. And I'm I'm happy to be so booked and busy. <laughs> Rachel's involved and Betsy's involved. That's about all I can say. And and some characters I've worked with before. Well, and I was going to say, Betsy, because of uh, social media fandom, it sounds like. So I figured out what my thing was. That's why I'm coming back. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say, like, how as a, you know, you're, uh, as an art, a writer, an artist, a creator, you know, finding that balance of listening and reacting. And I always think of like the Sonic, for some reason, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie came into my brain as we were talking that out, which was, yeah, maybe listen to the fans on this one and like do the, <laughs> do the, you know, put, put some time into it, put some effort into it. But just from your perspective, you know, how do you balance that? How do you see it? What's the, what's, what should be really the rules of etiquette, I think on, on both sides, if, if I'm being completely like kind of asking the right question. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting and ever evolving question. Um, particularly in a fandom as engaged and passionate as the X-Men. You know, as an X-Men fan myself, we are not a normal people. (laughs) (laughs) We do not usually have normal levels of investment in in this property. Um, For my part, I try to listen to very little of it because when it comes to production schedules, usually things are done by the time they're out. Like Dark X-Men was fully written before the first issue came out. Uh, It was like 85% written before it was announced. So there wasn't a lot of like room to incorporate that kind of feedback anyway, or else Fantasia would have come back. (laughs) Um, I think that you need to like commit to a vision and build it from your own inspirations, from working with your peers, especially in a group like the X-Men right now, you know, I'm bouncing my ideas off of Steve and Kieran and Jerry and Al and Teeny and all these other people. And it's easier to build an idea there than it is in an online echo chamber Mm. because I can go on X spoilers right now and I can find someone who says dark X-Men is the best thing ever. And it should run for 25 issues. (laughs) And I can find someone who says dark X-Men is the worst fall of X book. They better get this Steve Fox guy out of there. And there's really no way to reconcile that. You know, You, you just have the people in your head at war with each other. So I try to see as little as possible, which can be a shame sometimes because there are a lot of really fun, engaging fans and readers online. And I like engaging with them at times, but the, the parasocial element of it can get weird where it's like, you need to do this. You need to show this. It's like, buddy, I don't need to do anything but turn in my script and get my paycheck. <laughs> you know, and you're not the one signing it, Mister Mister Mouse is. Well, um, but in times like the point I'm at right now, where I'm building something for the spring, and I already had plans for Betsy, but once that got leaked, I saw like how much passion there was for Betsy. 
it wasn't that so much that I changed it because of that, than that it made me think again, and think like, okay, you know what? There's a lot of material here. It would be a shame to underutilize a character who is otherwise not going to get a spotlight in these months. Um, so it was kind of just kind of like alerted me to the, the potential. Yeah. Well, it's like an excitement factor, a positive one. So I, I love right. that element of your, everybody's playing on the same side of the, yeah, this could be so cool as opposed to do this yeah. <laughs> or I'm not going to do this. Kind of <laughs> well, you know, I've been reading X-Men for a very long time and I definitely have like, you know, my fidelity to certain characters. I love certain characters. But at the end of the day, they're characters, they're fictional. And, you know, if there's something I don't really care for, there've been X-Men runs in the past that I haven't really been my favorite and it's just like oh this too shall pass and yeah. you know there will be you know a writer that i really enjoy you know i'm very lucky that like fall of x is fantastic and just the what hickman spawned a few years ago has been like some of the best x books ever uh over the last several decades uh but it just amazes to me that people get like so angry and vitriolic over i mean you know, they're fictitious characters and yeah. real people are writing them. And it's, you know, it's okay if that's not exactly what's in your head canon. I don't know. I think that sometime over the past five or six years, you know, there's always been this stereotype of like the comic book guy, you know, but right. with social media, I think comic book fans melded with comic book stands mm. and stan culture. I do think, you know, especially as it pertains to musicians and stuff, there is a more toxic element and yeah. also more of like a tribal element. It's not just like, oh, I think the way you wrote Jean Grey is stupid. It's Jean Grey is my mother, literally my birth mother. And if you don't write her correctly, I will murder your child. Um, so I think like that, that element has been tough to deal with. And it comes usually from a good place. Like there's a root of, protectiveness and love for these fictional characters but it is important to keep that perspective that you were talking about and i think like i came in at such a time you know i was a fan from pride of the x-men which is like what 1990 91 very yeah. early but i became a, a dedicated monthly reader um when Jean formed her team of uh, uh wraith and frenzy and dazzler that little oh no <laughs> <laughs> and then new x-men blew my mind and new right. x-men is kind of like a gestational you know pillar for me uh and you know frankly the period right after did not treat it very well it right. was like one month later they're like okay everything uh you just read mm, we're walking that back i think surviving that and being able to understand okay the things i really invest in the things i love it will wax and wane the old stories are not going away. New stories will come eventually. It can be hard to keep that perspective in the moment, but there's decades and decades of X-Men stories. And if you don't like one right now, I promise there's something you haven't read in the past that you would probably enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Or something coming in six months that you're going to enjoy. Yeah. And what, yeah, uh, spring 2024 is what I'm hearing is when the real <laughs> books are going to be hitting the stands that people will love. <laughs> Um, so wrapping up on uh, Dark X-Men, we do have a little game for you. This is called Casting Creatures. So it's a game of monsters and mutants and it's fairly simple. We're going to name a monster and we want you to tell us which mutant you would like to cast as that monster. 
okay, this concept is not as simple as I just said. <laughs> so, you know, for example, we might say vampire and you'd say, well, we've seen Bloodstorm or Jew. We call her Jew Bloodly, but it's Jubilee as a vampire. Oh. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with that? Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. You know, Finish that very... sentence, Adam. Finish <laughs> that sentence. Well, it was written down as just Jude Bloodly, and I was like, people do not know what that is. Uh, but I think it'd be very fun to have a vampire version of Colossus, let's say. Mm. So you're just imposing a monster's characteristic on the existing X-Men. We do have okay. a few uh, you know, things you can't do, but we'll get to those in a second. So we'll start simple. So Frankenstein's monster. If you had to think of a mutant that would, you know, embody that or you'd want to see them go through that journey, who would it be? Well, okay, so maybe you're going to say this is cheating and it doesn't count. But one of the ways I created the cast for Dark X-Men was based on monster archetypes. So Frankenstein, for me, was Albert. Made in a lab, uh, a homunculus, you know, not quite fulfilled, uh, weird relationship with a little girl. (laughs) I love that. No, I think, you know, this is actually more fun. We do have some can't be's, but looking at the list there, there's one that'll, you'll have to come (laughs) up with something new. So, okay. So the mummy, but they can't be apocalypse. Ooh. So the mummy wasn't one that I had. So now I have to actually think about it. Mm, Who's really dry and dusty? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, dust would be offensive. Not answering dust. Um, <laughs> mummy. Oh, you know what? Marrow, because the the mummy bones oh, yeah. it's kind of present. Um, yeah, yeah. Revealing that which is underneath, having multiple forms. I would say marrow. I like it. Uh, which, but it can't be Wanda Maximoff. Oh, Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come Easy on. Enough, is, yeah, we should have cut you off with the legs on that one, too. She's the Wicked Witch. Uh, and if I couldn't say Maddie, Celine. Um, the, I will say, you know, there were big Celine plans, but the when I first got asked about Dark X Men, I wanted to have Maddie and Celine fight. Mm. But Kieran's got better ideas. So <laughs> it, went, it went to him. Uh, Demon, can't be Nightcrawler or Azazel. Oh, I was going to say Azazel. Um, <laughs> He was cast in Dark X-Men as the devil, which, you know, makes sense. Demon, 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 demon. Mm. <laughs> it could be metaphorical, too. It doesn't have to be like a literal horny tail person. Horny? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? Demon, the idea of like the literal name for demon and meaning like something hidden, like demonstrate colossus colossus is hiding hiding a lot of demons right now and that's kind of been his arc for all of krakoa uh, is this side of him that is is bad for everybody but he can't speak truth to it yet oh that's good i like that uh ghost can't be kitty pride or kate pride whichever one (laughs) so uh ghost is who i wanted jesse bedlam to be because Um... his ability is to be you know unseen by he he can disrupt electromagnetic waves and all these things and my angle on him was going to be um kind of a more existential version of what pyro went through where he had been resurrected and like didn't really believe he was alive Mm. so jesse was going to be my ghost i love that uh invisible man and it can't be sue storm even though she's not a mutant (laughs) (laughs) Uh oh, Invisible Man. <laughs> Someone kind of actually proved they could do this sort of in one of the follow-up X books. 
Oh, you mean Nightcrawler? Getting no, it's oh. the, I was thinking of Bishop from Children of the Vault since he like did oh, the yeah. sort of electromagnetic spectrum stuff. That was a really cool... Children of the Vault is really great if anyone's sleeping on it. It's one of my favorite Fall of X books and I shouldn't pick favorites, but it is. Um, it's so good, yeah. And that was a very cool interpretation of Bishop's powers. Um, I mean, I actually love that Psy brought back that element of Nightcrawler's powers, so I'm going to say him because in the early stories, he could fully blend into shadows and be mm. invisible and it kind of just went away over the decades i don't know right. why writers weren't as interested in it i guess okay uh werewolf can't be beast or wolverine my werewolf is carmen cruz faint um because she so she is a metamorph and she can fully transform we've seen that but uh she also has this bestial form that kind of she transforms into when she's angrier when she needs a, a little extra power boost so you'll see that in the course of of dark x-men like that. Did you feel personally inclined to change the codename to Faint, or what's the story there? Just kind of the story is very funny. Um, so I am friends with Vita Ayala. We've been friends for years, and uh, I was really excited to use Carmen. And I I never disliked gimmick. Um, the name itself, I did immediately want to get her a new costume. <laughs> so yeah. like, I just didn't want to have Gambit cosplay in Dark X Men. I was like, this yeah. is not, yeah. not yeah. my fantasy. Um, so I was really excited when we got to do that. But I had texted Vita to ask them um, which borough Carmen was supposed to be from because I mm-hmm. couldn't determine for sure from Children of the Atom and there's a line in three that references it. And Vita told me and they also said that, oh, you know, maybe you can finally change her name to Faint like I had planned to. Oh. So if you go back to Children of the Atom, Carmen's a streamer and her streaming name is Faintly Frosted Stitches. Oh, yeah. And Vita had intended when... Carmen became like a full resident of Krakoa and was planned to show up in other projects. Uh, Vita was going to change her name to Faint, uh, which, you know, Vita just never got around to doing because circumstances changed. Mm -hmm. And at the time I had texted them, it was like the day before the lettering draft for issue two was due. And there was actually a perfect sequence in that that I could make fit. So the the dialogue Amazing. changed last second and i i messaged jordan and lauren amaro right away and was like can we do this does anyone care they're like yeah you know probably no one cares at this point she's pretty new so we can do because <laughs> we all felt like gimmick was kind of an implied insult like yeah i was gonna say there's like a negativity to or just like yeah. a, this doesn't feel right so i think it, it's nice to see first off you get to see how maddie's a little pushy because she rips it out of carmen's mind it's a concrete change that happens for her in Dark X-Men. And it shows like this character is going to stick around uh, because, you know, I'm using her again after Dark X-Men as well. If she survives. Oh, she ain't no gimmick this time. You heard it here <laughs> first. Uh, kind of two more, two more. Creature from the Black Lagoon can't be Namor. Ooh, oh, the little fish mutant from Atlantis who literally just looks like Creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't even remember his name, but I always thought his design was cool because that's my favorite Universal monster movie is Creature from the Black Lagoon. Ah, Another gremlin, just the perfect gremlin. Uh, Vampire, but it can't be Storm or Selene. Implate. He was my vampire. Oh, yeah. No, very much so. Yeah. And Havoc is my zombie. Ah, that was literally uh, the one we were. I was literally gonna be like writer's choice. Who were we missing? Because we were like yep. going through all of the, which kind of makes Gambit um, Van Helsing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's got the trench coat, right? He's gonna get some stakes, yeah. Yep. And angels, the fallen angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maggot, right. maggots, maggot, <laughs> maggot, ma- mag- maggot defies all convention. Yes. 
Love Maggot so much. All right, we're going to move on. Stay with the X-Men. We're going to move on from Dark X-Men to some of your X-Men Unlimited stories uh, that you've done recently. First one is the, the prequel to the most recent and tragic Hellfire Gala. Um, you co-wrote these vignettes with uh, Stephanie Williams, um, you know, kind of focusing on each of the folks who were going to be this new X-Men team. How bittersweet was it like writing? You knew the <laughs> destination. You knew what was going to happen. How bittersweet was it writing Frenzy and Cannonball and Juggernaut and Jubilee and everybody? It was really hard. I mean, I am big fans of these characters. Like I hit Jubilee and Dazzler buttons right on my desk. Yeah. At oh all my God, times. so cute. You know, I said Pride of the X-Men was really my first exposure. So I've been a Dazzler stan like mm. my entire life. Um, it was bittersweet, but... I think that inspired both of us to write like the best little tributes we could to these characters. Um, writing with Steph was such a joy. We didn't know each other that well before the project, but uh, you know, I wrote the loser serial last year for Monet and, and Siren and the rest of them. And Jordan asked me to come back and I was of course excited to, um, but Steph had recently done that storm backup in Scarlet Witch. Yeah. And we had become like social media friends, kind of just acquaintances I was like, could I do this with Steph Williams? Like, she's on the rise at Marvel. She seems really cool. Uh, and he's like, yeah, man, whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we got to collaborate and write those together. And, you know, it just couldn't have come out any other way, especially on, like, Frenzy and Cannonball. Um, you know, Steph brought so much to those stories that I never would have had the perspective to do. Um, and they were just so fun. And Noemi Vittori is the artist and, and Pete, mm -hmm. uh, the colorist. You know, Noemi's style is not something you would necessarily see in like the print books. So that's why I love Unlimited getting to have these different tones. And fans say all the time they want slice of life stories. So when we knew, mm -hmm. okay, this team is not going to exist long enough to have an adventure together. And you can kind of only push the concept so far. You know, the first year, Teeny Howard, who's a good friend of mine, she wrote Secret X-Men. She came up with a really good justification, which is that those were the characters who wanted it the most. Right. And that made a lot of sense for that cast. Right. When I got a much weirder cast last year, <laughs> I went with they're thrown together by circumstance because why is Micromax and Gorg, you know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but for this, we're like, okay, well, there's not really time for them to have any adventure. Like, unless we had some conceit of like, you know, time gets frozen. It just would have been ridiculous. Right, right. So, we need you in this other dimension. Yeah. Right as you're performing as a team. And unfortunately, <laughs> we're going to put you back at the exact wrong right. time. Um, <laughs> But it ended up, you know, I think people had a really emotional reaction to that page. We knew we, they would have an emotional reaction to that page. And it was really heartwarming to get to show why each of those characters would get elected to be X-Men. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that's the angle we took. And, and uh, I'm grateful that they went over well. We also got to do fun things like bring Sammy the Fish Boy back. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know use the executioner one of my favorite 90s villains so they're just like really fun and i was writing it at the same time as dark x-men they couldn't be more different tonally mm -hmm. so it was nice to have those projects to go back and forth with yeah so uh keeping them over unlimited uh we've had two issues now come out and by the time this comes out uh this interview comes out the third issue will be out of the the story with sunfire on his journey to find red root uh can you give our listeners a quick pitch on this uh, adventure quest? Yeah. So in X-Men 24, Jerry and Josh Kassara showed that Sunfire finally went on his long teased otherworld adventure to retrieve Red Root on behalf of Rocco. Uh, Red Root is a plant-based mutant who got uh, 
embroiled in some trouble during uh ex of swords ten of swords whatever uh back in back in the day and uh she's been stuck in Morocco ever since so now steve orlando uh lynn yoshi and for uh the colorist we got to tell this adventure so jerry shows where it starts and ends and we got this really open canvas in the middle uh it is us doing kind of a high adventure high fantasy uh, saga with the uh, the second chapter shows that we go to Blightspoke, which is kind of the more science fiction-y right. um, borderlands within Otherworld. The fun thing about Otherworld is that it's a little bit of everything. You've got the creepy, you've got the fantasy, you've got the sci-fi. Um, so we pulled on a lot of the elements that we've seen in X of Swords and in uh, uh, all of Teeny's work throughout the X line. Uh, and it's just so fun to do and give Sunfire one of his first ever solo adventures. It's been really rare to see him outside of a team context. And he's been mm -hmm. one of my favorite characters since I was a kid. Uh, I just always thought his design was cool. I thought it was as a kid using kid logic. I was like, why aren't there any fire characters on the X-Men ever? Like none of them stick. None of them stay around for long. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I just thought Sunfire was so cool. And I was, completely thirsty about it in the x-men slack so when it came up like jordan mentioned yeah we're gonna do the sunfire story uh, as an unlimited we're gonna you know start making the unlimited more in continuity i was like oh boy whoever gets to do that is real lucky he's one of my favorite characters i love that guy cannot wait to see this story so excited love it uh and you know like a week later he's like do you want to write this <laughs> but notice yeah, yeah. So, uh um well we do have a question from christopher falcon on twitter you know uh, many thanks to you for squeezing in so many unsung heroes in your stories you mentioned sammy fishboy jeffrey garrett gray malcolm inspector kenji who's the next great youth you'd like to see explored or given some shine and then whose resurrection during krakoa excited you the most Ooh, did he say did this person say youth specifically I, I guess that's, that's a question. Yeah, like the kind of the next generation of X Men, the, yeah. the young, young X Men or new oh, X Men. Let me think really hard about this. I think Resurrection is more open game if, yes. based on the question. Order. Well, I mean, I am a big fan of like Academy X era, um, Generation X. I always like the younger mutant characters. And, and years ago, if you'd asked me, like, what's my ideal? Krakoan pitch I would have pitched like a teen x book mm -hmm. um my pride story this year was my my like super condensed version of doing a teen x book um I would really like to see Mercury get some shine um, mm. no pun intended I just always <laughs> yeah. that's horrible um I just have always liked <laughs> Cecily and I think she has a really cool power set um there is one Twitter user who asks about Hellion like every other day but I also would like to see Hellion do something. Okay. I haven't I haven't had a chance, but I liked Hellion a lot when I was younger. Um, Wither was a character I considered for Dark X-Men, and I just decided wasn't monstrous enough for the mm. book. Uh, I like really visible mutations, and, and Wither didn't fit the bill. Um, but I think he's a really cool one to explore. I love the teen characters, and uh, I'm trying to think. I'm actually not using very many of them in my upcoming work, though. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I have not uh, put that foot forward. But I hope others do. Um, as far as Resurrections, I was most excited about. I was actually really pumped to see Gorgon involved in the X-Men books. Um, I've always had a fondness for mutants who are not strictly X-Men characters. Right, yeah. Um, mm. Also, you know, Firestar, who I got to write. I just thought it was cool to show that reverberating through other parts of the Marvel universe. 
And while he did play a big role in Wolverine, he was also in Secret Warriors and other Hickman projects. Mm -hmm. So that was a cool pull to me. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was dead at the time of Krakoa starting and then got resurrected. I feel like a lot of people have gone through the lawnmower since then. Right. I think Thunderbird is the one that like sticks out the most to me because he was dead for so long. And then Steve Orlando got to write him in that one shot. Co- co- yeah. one shot so that was pretty cool like that's just the one that like sticks out to me yeah and it was cool to get to see steve really push for that um because you know he and i have been good friends for years or good frenemies as i often like to say <laughs> and uh to see him develop that with uh, nyla rose who's a, a right a native wrestler oh skin i was really happy to see skin oh yeah skin. oh my god i love especially love generation x um i love chamber i love that whole cast of characters and i always felt so bad that skin died in that run um the same one that mm-hmm. jesse bedlam's crucified in uh and it was just so cool to see him come back i know jonathan hickman's a big fan of generation x too so he he of course made that a priority i would love to work with skin i, I do not have him coming up in anything but angela mm. is big in my book so rounding out our X-Men conversation, uh, so you probably saw on Twitter and Instagram, we did a month long, we called it <laughs> X-Men Assembled, where we had people voting on, you know, various X characters, mutants going up against each other. And then we finally assembled them into two teams, X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, X-Men Blue, Storm, Sync, Polaris, M, Boom Boom, North Star, uh, Laura, uh, Magic and Richter, and then X-Men Gold is Magneto, Iceman, Emma Frost, Cat's Eye, Dust, Rogue, Karma, Dazzler, and Forge. Uh, the vote is done, so this is low stakes. <laughs> uh, but curious, of these two teams, which would you pick? To work on or to read? All the above. <laughs> oh, man. And they can be different answers for both questions. I know. Well, I'll say, first off, pretty much everyone I voted for in this poll lost, which is great. <laughs> I think I voted for the losing option almost every single time. Uh, and I was also very disappointed to see Madeline lose her round. Me yeah. too. Oh, my God. I was like, Steve, this is why you and I get along. I was so upset. Even though I like Ileana, I was like, Maddie forever. I think of these two, I would be the most excited to write gold because... Mm. Uh, I haven't really ever gotten to do anything with Magneto. Uh, Emma Frost, obviously very close to my gay boy heart. Yep. <laughs> and Cat's Eye is just such a random addition to this team. <laughs> like, <laughs> she stands out so much in both of these lineups. It would be really funny to try to make sense of that. Um, but I do like how the blue one is fully leaning into the all the best X-Men are women. Uh, uh, yeah, stereotype. for sure. It's like North Star, Richter, and Sync kind of just hanging out here. Like, the women are going to take care of the problem. Do the work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would be too scared to really write. Like, I wouldn't want to take on Storm. Like, I feel like there are characters who I admire and respect too much to think that I could really, like, get in their head. And I would have hey, a hard if, time. If Mark Guggenheim could do it, you can too. <laughs> or wait, not right. Cool. You don't have to write anything for her, apparently, for five years while she's on it. Let's stay positive, Adam. Let's stay positive. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Um, I got to write Storm in X Men '92, which is so fun because you right. hear the '90s animated yeah. voice, like you hear yeah. that like elevated monorail, you know. But I, I think that six one six Storm, uh, I would almost feel like not worthy to write. 
love it. Um, all right. Well, let's slide on over to the Spider-Verse because Swing. you are responsible. Swing, Swing. on over. Twip, yeah. twip, twip. I know. I didn't rehearse my transitions well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you get to pitch the first canonically queer Spider-Man? I got approached out of the blue. <laughs> it was really exciting um i got the email right so i take my boyfriend to and from work because he doesn't drive and uh i had pulled up to wait for him and i got the email in my inbox and i was just like holy shit <laughs> it was very scary at first because you know i got into uh comics and com- comics journalism Ugh, it's such a somber turn but as like <laughs> comics gate was such a big thing and the milkshake mm. and the harassment and everything so my first thought was like oh my god this could kill my career. Like mm. people could harass me, uh, you know, off of the industry. But my boyfriend immediately slapped sense into me and was like, no, this is a huge opportunity. You have to do this. This is ridiculous. Um, I think at that point I had only done X-Men 92 and maybe I had started working on some of the unlimited stuff. Uh, but I had never worked in the spider office because the spider ham books I do are through Scholastic. Um, right. Not, not through Marvel proper. So I was just really honored. Uh, Caden McGahey is the assistant editor on those books and they liked my work and thought I'd be a good fit. And yeah, all I knew going in was that they had wanted Cooper, uh, who didn't have a name yet. He didn't have any sort of name. They wanted this character to be an original character in his own universe and to embrace the femme side of being a gay man. So Mm -hmm. they did not want a mask for mask gay. (laughs) They didn't want a character who was like, oh, you know, being gay is inconsequential to my identity. Like they wanted someone, you know, fabulous and fun and right. unashamed of it. Um, so they went to me who spends his life in a hoodie and shorts. Uh, <laughs> but my boyfriend uh, is a fashion designer. He works in clothes. He's big oh, in wow. fashion. So he actually really helped inspire a lot of elements of, of uh, Cooper Cohen, um, including, you know, he went to fashion school. He works in high fashion as as a uh, employee at van dyne in that universe janet van dyne love love that so fun it was so fun to me because i just love alternate universes in comics and i love them to be unique like nothing bummed me out more in what ifs or exiles or things like that when the universe that you went to was too similar to the 616 i was like Mm -hmm. if you're gonna take me somewhere else everything better be different i want to see other costumes you know other personalities other relationships i don't want to see our world but you know one thing off so Mm -hmm. Getting to mix and match and, and do different versions of some of Spider-Man's villains like Craven and Chameleon. Um, it's just so much fun. And yeah. Cooper is not named after Anderson Cooper and uh Andy Cohen. Which is just <laughs> that, a really I didn't even think of that, but wow. I know, yeah, right? I mean, I really regretted when I when someone else pointed that out to me. He's actually <laughs> named after Dennis Cooper, who's one of my favorite authors, but who's like a very taboo gay author of like transgressive fiction. So not Anderson Cooper, uh, <laughs> but no, it, was, it was a great honor to to work with Chris Anka designing the suit. Um, as much Beautiful pressure design, as yeah. The, yeah, as much pressure as there was to come up with this original character, the fact that Chris's suit was so instantly iconic, like people were excited about the idea of Web Weaver, but before the story even came out, so it was a little bit of like a pressure off my shoulders because mm. like, there was there was cosplay of Web Weaver before yeah. the first story came out, so I was like, Very, okay. Uh, yeah. Very, very ghost spider. Very like Gwen, like when Gwen, when mm-hmm. Spider Gwen like came out, everybody immediately just like went to like her iconography, and then I think Web Weaver had a similar, similar journey too. 
yeah, it kind of took a little bit of the pressure off my shoulders. But I was like, okay, even if I flop, the suit's good. So <laughs> something's going to last. And that was fun to, to develop with Chris because I knew I wanted him to have like an orb weaver inspiration. And when you look at a spread of spiders, yellow is not a dominant color in almost any of the existing costumes. Right. So web weaver really instantly stands out. So mm. it was fun to get to develop that all from the ground up. I love it. We do have a question from uh, Instagram. So this is Dante Rodriguez's <laughs> question, Inferno Magic, if anybody wants to follow this wonderful individual. Uh, you know, when creating, we kind of already established, I think that maybe the fashion sense was not the traits and ideas that you brought in from your side, but you know, when creating this new queer character for Marvel, how much of yourself did you put into traits and mannerisms? And then, you know, what aspects of the character beyond obviously what kind of the remit or the mandate Marvel was about having a more femme, more openly queer um, character. What what were important to see represented for you as a as an individual? Oh, that's that's a very thoughtful question. Um, I actually I don't think there's a lot of me in Cooper. Uh, I don't tend to write like very self-inserty style stories. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I edit James Tynan, and a lot of his success comes from drawing on his own life and experiences. Um, it's not something I've tapped a lot. And when I have, it's not immediately apparent. There is a character in Dark X-Men who is me, but I don't know, you know, you're not necessarily going to guess that. Oh. Um, but when it comes to Cooper, I almost feel like he's more aspirational than he is based on my own life. Like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking back, but I wish I could go back to being, you know, 17 and like don't care about whether you're perceived mm. as masculine as, or feminine. Mm. Don't care about if people are talking about if you're a top or a bottom. Like, don't waste time thinking about how you present yourself to the world versus just living your life as you live it. And I think a lot of queer people, younger queer people wrestle with that, especially you know, like I grew up in the Midwest and then I moved to New York for college. So you're thinking so much at that age about the image you're putting out into the world. And Cooper is very unabashed from a young age you know he clashes with his parents and he gets kicked out and he's really living his life on his own terms from the age of 15 16 17 um which i think especially as like a peter parker archetype that's so defined by having a double life so cooper does have this double life with webweaver but in his personal life he's him like take it mm. or leave it right. uh, you know he's, he's not dealing with a triple life like when he's out of the costume that is cooper and if you have a problem with that, then, you know, sashay away. <laughs> uh, the other thing was, it's a delicate balancing act, but I wanted to reflect, like, fun, campy gayness without, like, we've all read the comics with the really cringy lines. We've all read the, like, <laughs> instantly dated dialogue or the instantly dated memes and references. And, like, right. look, maybe I am perfectly guilty of some of that, too. But finding that, like, right element of fun... Uh, especially since the character's appearing sporadically. You know, I don't I know the next point that Cooper's gonna appear, it hasn't been announced yet, but he doesn't have an ongoing series, he doesn't have a mini-series. So we kind of have to make the most bang for our buck each time he shows up. So getting to communicate some of those like fun, authentically gay things that other gay readers will recognize. Cause it's always kind of a not to get too soapboxy, but there's always that push and pull of is this queer character by queer people for queer people mm. or is he for the consumption of a wide audience that has its own conceptions of what queerness right. is and it's probably the most delicate way i can put that yeah no i, I could put it much less delicately but i value my continued employment um <laughs> 
<laughs> so I just think trying as much as I could to communicate, I'm a gay man writing a gay man, living a gay man's life was what I was mm-hmm. trying to get across with Cooper. Well, we've got, well, we actually have a follow-up question. I think it will tie in nicely around last time you were here. We talked a lot about like queer 101, 102. Oh yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Cause I do want to give you a chance to, um, all I have is spider woman, Jessica Drew. So I'd love to <laughs> turn it, turn it over to you to just really tell us a little bit more and what, what would you be excited about in the world of, uh, the Spider-Verse? Yeah. Well, that's actually, I mean, that kind of hits the nail on the head of one of the funny things about queerness as it relates to comic characters. A lot of the times what gay male readers get excited about are not gay male characters. It's powerful female characters. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is a funny balancing act when you have characters like Iceman or Richter or Webweaver, where you hope they'll be embraced by a gay audience. But a lot of the times we seem to kind of like reject or eat our own uh, because we'd rather see Rogue or Emma Frost or Spider-Woman. <laughs> Thankfully, I get to write them both. <laughs> so it's all good to me. Um, but I do think there are interesting phenomenons at work there. Uh, and I've heard, never mind, that's such a big tangent. But um, <laughs> as far as Spider-Woman is concerned, I was very excited. Caden uh, had ended up recommending me after we worked together on Webweaver to pitch on Spider-Woman. So they knew that they were launching a new Spider-Woman miniseries out of Gang War, the event going on in the Spider-Man mm-hmm. books this fall. And uh, initially it was conceived as a four-issue miniseries, but Jessica Drew, I feel, is one of Marvel's most prominent female characters. She's had a lot of really impressive runs, and they had hoped that if the potential was there, it could carry on to a longer story. So as of now, that's the case. Uh, We're going beyond our initial story. Uh, That's obviously only going to stay the case if readers buy the book. (laughs) So if you're interested in seeing Jessica Drew on the stands, uh, please ask your local comic shop to pre-order. It does spin out of Gang War, but uh, the way we've tackled this is of all of the minis, the Spider-Woman series is kind of the the most, I don't want to say isolated, but it's using Gang War as a springboard to a very Jessica Drew specific story. So Mm. this is really tied to who Spider-Woman is, uh, her recent continuity uh, in the Spider-Man series, the Mark Bagley, Dan Slott one. She was severed from the web of life and ceased to exist for a period of time. Uh, so when she comes back into existence at the end of that arc, something very important to her is missing. And that's where we pick up in Spider-Woman. So it is playing off of gang war and we are contributing to the larger gang war story. But we're really telling like the next chapter in, in Spider-Woman's solo adventure. Um, I was also really excited because Julia Carpenter, the second Spider-Woman, is a major supporting character in the book. Uh, When I was a kid, Julia was Spider-Woman, even though I've always been more of a Jessica Drew fan. Uh, (laughs) But it's very fun to get to use both uh, now that Julia is in her Madam Web identity. Um, Spider-Woman is an intimidating character to take on because she's had these really impactful runs going back to Bendis bringing her into New Avengers. Mm -hmm. But we are, uh, Corolla Baroli and I, uh, the art team on the book, we're really trying to give our own spin on Spider-Woman that embraces her pulp roots, that embraces her private detective era, that embraces her more street level aspects and gives you something a little different than, uh, you know, Carla and Pere did and a little different than Dennis and um, Javier, Javier did. So, you know, we're not mimicking any of the runs that came right before us, but we're really trying to celebrate who Jessica Drew has been over the course of her history. Well, staying with spiders for a second, we do want to <laughs> shift over to your indie uh, book that 
Fourth issue came out recently. The trade will be coming out very soon. All eight eyes with uh, Piotr uh, uh, Kowalski. I can never say that last name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but this is published by Dark Horse. Um, you know, you focus uh, so much like on the, the these monstrous spiders, which I think are a primal fear for a lot of people. Um, we talked a little bit off pod about this, but <laughs> are spiders a primal fear? Have you reclaimed them? What do you think about primal fear generally in horror fiction uh, as, you know, as a genre? Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by the things that just kind of automatically repel us. Uh, for me, it's claustrophobia. Like, that's just such a... Even just saying that, I like feel the need to stretch out on my chair. <laughs> uh, you know, we do have these triggers. And for me, none of them have ever been related to spiders or spy uh, snakes or creepy crawlies, with the exception of centipedes, which mm -hmm. are deep, deep-seated fear for me. Um, but as someone who's always loved spiders... I was always interested in the idea that for some people it inspires instant revulsion, like cannot process, cannot deal. And even when you break it down, you know, most spiders are very helpful. It's good to have spiders around. Mm, they eat yeah. the bugs that are worse to have in your home and garden. Um, but all the eyes, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm damning my own book with faint praise. It almost wasn't like that deep. <laughs> It's like a tribute to giant monster stories. I love giant animal horror uh, from like the 50s nuclear boom through to right. the 80s with like alligator and grizzly and um, prophecy, which is another giant bear. Uh, I just love giant animal horror. I think it's like a really pure form of horror story. And uh, when when this was first conceived, we were living through such a glut of what people both like positively and negatively call elevated horror. Um, so, you know, the kind of horror movies where it's like, ah, yes, this is a metaphor for X, Y, Z. Oh, Art House, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A24 type, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I like a lot right. of those movies. You know, I love The Babadook, and that's about as on the nose as you can get with when it comes to, like, metaphor for grief. But I think that... After I just thought the... it was about a really shitty kid, Steve. Is that not what I was supposed <laughs> to take away from the movie? Why can't I you be normal, Adam? I use that meme so often about <laughs> comics people. <laughs> Why can't you be normal? I'm gay. Um, yes. So after that wave of, of movies that I think had very considered takes on it, you had a lot of like the bigger studio rush jobs where it's like, okay, the monster's a metaphor for grief. The monster's a metaphor for loss. The monster's a metaphor for whatever. It's like, no, these are giant spiders. <laughs> like, they are a metaphor for giant spiders. Uh, and, you know, there are other levels it works on. Like, yes, I'm talking about homelessness and, and the kind of people who get overlooked in urban environments. So it's not like none of that's there. But I really sat, set out to tell, like, an alligator-style story of giant spiders <laughs> and to embrace the setting and to have fun with the characters and have a gay uh, character in the lead, mm -hmm. um, pair him with, uh, you know, this this older unhoused guy who has a dog, Uh but again, it, it sounds like I'm I'm downgrading my own work, but it kind of wasn't that deep. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, yeah, it's like, I like the way you put it because I think of like Mimic, I think of the Relic, like all those like 90s creature features that were like, the plots were like still a little bit more than just like this crazy thing's attacking, but like <laughs> where it, lost, it lost the camp, but it kept the like pretty simple storyline. And I actually really appreciate about your book as well because you've got to actually focus a lot on the the characters themselves so you know particularly Ren reynolds quote unquote whatever yeah <laughs> and then 
Um, but, you know, I did want to kind of jump in on the the queer one-on-one conversations, bringing that back to close it out, you know, with Vin being uh, obviously very out, very focused, but like you're telling a story of not also a, you know, Mary Sue type gay character that's magically everything works out for them and they're so great. <laughs> so just like would love to hear a little bit more from your perspective on how, you know, a lot of what we talked about the last Creator question, just that general concept that people want gay storylines that don't have to be the coming out storylines. They don't have to be the, you know, standard stuff we've seen for, for years now in a great way, but yeah. we want to, we all want to mature. We want to learn. We want to keep growing as people. So we'll just love a little bit more of your perspective on how that influenced the book and also just anything else you'd love to kind of, kind of tap into. Yeah. Well, so, uh, Vin, who's one of the main characters, he is gay, and it's established, you know, from page one. Uh, I would say All AIs draws more on my personal experience than most books, um, because I did move to New York from the Midwest to go to college. I moved there a couple of years after when All AIs takes place, and I lived there over a period of time that New York was changing quite a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, that's true for everybody, because New York is always changing, <laughs> but... I do think like I lived there during a period of time where a lot of the local flavor and a lot of the local character of New York was kind of seeping out in favor of like when I moved there, there were very few Midwestern chains. When I left, Target was across from TJ Maxx, was across from uh, Taco Bell. That was not the case, you know, 15 years prior. So I was tapping more into my own experiences for all AIs than I was for most of my other projects. Um, it was also heavily inspired by, I used to work at Random House and uh, one of the editors, so the more senior editors uh, were pretty wealthy, <laughs> whether through marriage or family or whatever. And uh, one of them, you know, she lived on the Upper East Side and she had a, a daughter and uh, her daughter was maybe five or six when I started there. And she had told us how, uh, I can't remember now if it was her daughter or one of her daughter's friends, but they passed homeless people very often as you do in in major urban environments Mm -hmm. and one day the kid asked mommy why are all the dead people on the street because she thought that they were passing dead bodies they didn't really she didn't realize that these were people who were living out on the street and and homeless and that was kind of like the seed of the idea uh there Mm -hmm. was the idea that like there are people that are so overlooked like they might as well be dead um that you know they might as well be non-people in the eyes of a lot of new yorkers so that's really where All Eight Eyes came from. Uh, I guess I, you know, I really got off topic about the queerness of it all, but uh, it was a period of time where uh, I had recently done Party and Pray, which is a a slasher story that is very rooted in in gay culture and the idea of like striving for youth so hard that you would kill for it and consume for it. Uh, and I wanted to tell a story that involved a gay character in a more inconsequential way where him being gay is a matter of who he is and it it does cause tension briefly in the plot but it's kind of like a realistic experience of gayness to me like it's something that comes up and sometimes people have a little bit of a hurdle but usually Mm -hmm. you have to move on and deal with whatever is pressing in your life and and like giant spiders giant spiders (laughs) um so your book is deep steve (laughs) i think you might be on to something here the spider represents homophobia guys come on the spider is Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, it, you know, there are moments where it comes up in more subtle ways where it's like you see him briefly get into a fight with his his mom where he says he's not moving back home as long as right. he's there, which like right. you know, yeah. a tough time with his dad. Uh, his friend thinks he has AIDS when he's like not, you know, behaving normally. It's that those kind of like 
I don't want to overuse the term microaggressions, but like those kind of like daily experiences that you have as a queer person, if you're not immersed in a fully queer environment. Yeah. And what I really liked about it was, um, you know, I was going to talk about the setting 2003. I mean, I came out in the late nineties in college and the early two thousands were this like weird time for being queer, which you probably experienced, Steve, Adam, I know you did too, where it's like, you know, we were being legislated, we we're still being legislated against, but like, I remember, you know, uh, like the, you know, the ban on gay marriage uh, amendment that happened in like 2004. And then Bush used that, you know, as part of his reelection bid. And there were PSAs out there like, you know, uh, basically don't use gay as a slur. <laughs> like we had to thank you, Hillary Duff. that. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Hillary Duff. Exactly. Uh, like but that era, it's like even like ostensible allies. Like I remember uh, a girl I went to college with and I'm still really close friends with she used gay as a slur and I, and I had to say, Oh, so you mean it's a really good thing. Right. <laughs> right. Amanda. And uh, she was, she just looked at me for a second. She was like, Oh, I fucked up. And she was like, yeah, yeah you're, to you're totally right. I'm sorry for being a bad friend. You know, kind of one of the, but that era is right. Like even your friends, you know, who are straight and are like your allies, like are still doing like microaggressions to your point. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, a, I, I did grow up and come out around the same time. Uh, you know, I, I came out to everyone in my like school life in probably 2002, 2003. So right around the same time. I think the other funny thing about that era was queerness was getting into pop culture in specific ways. So yeah. it was more visible, but in really uh, commodified way. Like you had like Will and Grace. Will and Grace. And yeah. Things Queer's like that. that yeah. Queer as folk. Um, but even that, you know, that was on a specific uh, cable network so you weren't necessarily right. getting exposed to that but it was it was coming through in such specific bursts and often such stereotypical bursts and i think that affected what we would call allyship for a long time like i have the most vivid memory of coming out to one of my best friends in eighth grade and the first thing she said is i can't wait to go shopping with you <laughs> which is just very stupid because I'm not, you know, I'm not a fashion maven and I wasn't then and I don't like shopping now. <laughs> like, right. You're but, the gay best friend trope, right? Yes. So. And, you know, I, I heard that a million times when I was a teenager of like, oh, I'm so excited to have a gay best friend. It's like, no, you're not. You don't know what that means. Like you right. just, you see, uh, you know, uh, Mario and Sex in the City and that's what you're basing it on. But right. I have a whole life and I don't just disappear when you are not having boy problems. So I think that it was a period where we were making big strides, but because we had so much ground to recover from the the eighties and the nineties and the AIDS crisis and you know the Bush era and everything else, that we were making like very awkward strides. You know that game, yeah. that QWERTY game where you try to walk using the keyboard and like you can barely. Yeah. We're kind of making those kind of steps in the early two oh, thousands, yeah. and then you know I think we hit our stride and. You know, now it's a shitstorm of other proportions, but uh, I feel like a lot of that stuff has faded away and we're at least onto more nuanced conversations about sexuality, about it being a spectrum, about gender being a spectrum. And it's it's not the same like Will and Grace, like, oh, are you a Jack or a Will? <laughs> like, well, if, if one question I have for you, but I think it also ties really well into your point is when we think about where we are right now in sexuality relationships and things like that, and the fact that in 2003, I don't know if you remember this, Steve, the reality TV show on Bravo, Boy Meets Boy. Yes, I do. I watched every episode. <laughs> I just got to say that, that you know, Vin's probably a fan. You were a fan. so <laughs> But like that show literally was half of the contestants were straight and they were playing for money. And like, 
just thinking back of like how, I mean, we obviously have so much of a ways to go, but you're like, that literally was approved for television. And yep. it was the only thing we could flip back and forth for on with the previous channel button on our remote so control where we weren't out yet. Fox, Fox, uh, like the network Fox did a version of it called uh, Playing It Straight that ran for two episodes. And the reason I know it is a friend of mine when I lived in Austin was on it. And he, <laughs> he, he is gay. And like, he had to like pretend to be straight to like get money from this girl. Uh, like, like it was a bunch of bachelors. Oh, and there the was reverse ep- one. I do remember that. The one. reverse yes. one. Right, right. And yes. there was an episode where like he asked for a blow dryer and then she's like, you know, she does the pan to the camera. Like, I think hey, <laughs> and then you can just hear him like, I, he's like, oh shit. I just, you know, I think I just like outed myself. And I was like, Brad, oh my God, this is so funny. Like, and I was like waiting for more episodes, but they, Fox canceled it because it was truly an atrocious television show. Well, I also, uh, I never saw that one. I did watch Boy Meets Boy. And then uh, Next and Room yes. Raiders, the MTV shows. I remember oh I would God. watch Date those. Date My like, Mom. They were just oh, so fucking I think weird. I missed that one. But I, I would <laughs> oh, watch. Oh, sorry. That was, that was the thing I put on my own personal life. I was going to say, yeah, that's not real. <laughs> I would watch Next and Room Raiders like so fervently hoping for the gay episodes. But then yeah. the gay episodes were like, so embarrassing like every time because i just remember in like room raiders there was one episode with lesbians and one of the lesbians had made a map of all the lesbians who had slept with other lesbians and the room raider was on there from another like she had connected it through like oh my six God. degrees of kevin bacon um <laughs> and all the next all the the next ones on the bus like all the gays would just hook up on the bus yeah i'm not going out there i already got brad like <laughs> You know, it was not our best foot forward, but also oh fun. Like, let it be trashy. Let it be stupid. I was going to say, isn't that progress where we can yes. have trash, trash gay people, trash villains on TV and be like, Absolutely. that's us. That's us Med- More mediocre, unremarkable gay people just living our silly little <laughs> lives. Yep. Um, kind of wrapping up with all eight eyes. If you got to be the producer and writer for the movie, who would you want to direct? Who do you have for casting? Ooh. Just some general ideas. You don't have to go too too in depth. I'm so bad at this because I'm really bad at like modern celebrity culture. Um, you crap. can set it in 2003 if you wanted. The movie came out. <laughs> there we then. go. Oh, yeah, right. I would want to call up like Joe Dante from the 80s to direct it. Like, oh my the god, the guy who did like uh, Gremlins and, and yeah, oh my gosh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. let's get someone. You know, he did nice Arachnophobia season. too, didn't he? Or is that somebody else? I actually don't know. I, I didn't go back to watch Arachnophobia because I didn't want to be like implicitly right. inspired. But also, the biggest spider in that's like the size of a dinner plate, so it's kind of a different thing. <laughs> um, my spiders are much larger. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like someone like that, or um, that was Frank know, Marshall, Kalen, that did Arachnophobia. Frank Marshall, thank you. You know, it would actually be a fun choice. I'm not a huge fan of the Final Destination movies, but mm. that's created by a, a gay guy, so yeah. it'd be fun to tap. Um, or the guy who created Chucky is also a gay guy, so yes. it'd be fun to get either of them, especially in the early 2000s. They were like on their vibe at that moment, um, so it'd, it'd be cool to tap either of them. And then as far as like who would play Vin, oh my gosh. In the early 2000s, I would say, make it Ryan Felipe, because that's how I learned I was gay, was his ass <laughs> in cruel intentions. Uh, so I'd be like, yeah, muddy him up a little and, and get him back gay. And, and I'd pay to see that. Um, these days, 
I don't know, put a heart stopper kid in it so people will see it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never watched I, that. But well, yeah, red hair. No, that's right. Uh, gosh, whatever the, the the beefier. Well, now he's like super buff, but like the, uh, yeah. the Hulkling, basically, was, like like, like, Hulkling, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've never seen that show, but uh, I'm I'm for whoever will get butts in the seat. <laughs> <laughs> I will say so the one casting thing I can say um when I was inspired by Web Weaver uh Cooper Cohen is partially based on Ollie Alexander from years and years yeah yeah a- okay I so he that. was my biggest like out of costume inspiration so and he is a very good actor after watching It's a Sin um, yeah. on I guess Max now they call it um which fucking broke my heart like that like i was like ball like i didn't think i had those emotions in me i was like bawling (laughs) watching it did not watch it but both (laughs) uh his version and the pet shop boys version of it's a sin are on my uh web weaver playlist oh uh both are great i'm a big psp fan i love i love them so much it's a sin is such a good song do you ever publish these playlists like do you have spotify public playlists for people to say I put the Web Weaver one on Spotify, um, but I, I don't really know how to use Spotify. Because <laughs> so I, I, I made it. Grandma! Um, <laughs> I'm an Apple Music guy. Um, yeah. It was, uh, I made it for X-Men 92 because one of the data pages was a 90s play. That's, I was, th- I remember, when you were mentoning the soundtracks, I was thinking I was going to reference it. I was like, oh, but what if he yeah. didn't do that? <laughs> I'm making that up. And normally I pick one artist per project, like Nick Cave for Dark X-Men. Um, gotcha. For, for Spider-Woman, it's PJ Harvey. Um, but for Webweaver, I made a playlist with like Kylie Minogue and um, Sophie and Arca and, and like, you know, all the gay dancing. Oh, the queer, the queer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fisher Spooner Emerge was like my, oh my God. for that. Was, so good. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, no, if we can get it, we'd love to share it. Get, to, yes. get you some lessons on there. Yeah. If I can figure um, out how to log in, I will say. Yeah, right. <laughs> and speaking uh, so, of which, Nick Cave did a song with Kylie Minogue. We were talking about Nick Cave earlier, yes, which did. is such a wild like duo between those two. Australian icons. Yeah, it's true. And he's got a song with PJ Harvey from when they were dating. Six degrees of yeah, Nick Cave, I think, <laughs> is what we're starting to put together. Um, so let's wrap up with our Mad About You lightning round. Uh, the first up is power ranking. So I think while you were here last time, we might have done Mary Fuck Kill, but we're now trying to open it up a little bit more to not be <laughs> so specific. So we're going to give you three names and then through whatever system you feel so inclined, you're just going to rank them and you can give some quick reasonings. Um, so first up, Maddie, Celine, and Emma. Ooh. Um, okay. Maddie... Emma, Celine, and the ranking is uh, least amount of clothing worn on an average page. <laughs> oh, Perfect. you're gonna you're gonna turn this into those like very accurate graphs that they, I feel like is an ongoing <laughs> meme. Uh, all right, so next up, uh, Sunfire, Web Weaver, and Spider Woman. <laughs> Sunfire, Web Weaver, Spider Woman. Order in which I would underscore fill in the blank yourself. Leaving it really open. I love it. Uh, (laughs) Finale, uh, Possum, Reynolds, and Vin. Ooh. And you already used your blank answer, so you have to decide this one. Okay, okay. I mean, I think my blank was pretty well implied. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Possum, Vin, Reynolds, 
likelihood they will survive a story I write because I will never, <laughs> never kill a dog in one of my. No, books. you can't kill it, especially when it looks <laughs> like Spuds, Spuds McKenzie. Like you look like that from the eighties. <laughs> Very funny miscommunication, Piotr. I had written Pitbull and he drew a bull terrier, but it was so cute we didn't want to change it. Oh, he was adorable. Yeah, Very possum. Cute, yeah, but I was huge, like the li- the likelihood of a homeless bull terrier is very low <laughs> yeah i was gonna say like, yeah that dog is like yeah surprised bread. breed <laughs> yeah uh, well and then since we last interviewed you um any new favorites so maybe sci-fi fantasy stories tv shows movies comic books music just you know what's top of mind for you what would you recommend to people that isn't your own work for the spooky season i would really recommend um if you're interested in horror prose i always push people toward michael mcdowell um, he was a very talented gay horror writer in the 80s who passed away from HIV AIDS. Um, oh. But before, uh, so he worked on scripts for things like Beetlejuice, but he's also mm. an extremely talented novelist. Uh, I would start with The Elementals. That's one of my favorite horror novels of all time. Um, I would also really recommend people if they haven't checked out uh, Poppy Z. Bright's work. Uh, so Poppy Z. Bright Love has. Poppy Z. Bright, yes. I never know how to discuss him because he's transitioned and he lives as Billy Martin now, but all the books are still published as Bob, mm. Poppy Z. Bright and he's continued to give pull quotes as as Poppy. So mm. the, the books are published under Poppy. Um, but if you have not read his work, uh, it is so foundational for like queer, taboo, transgressive horror. Uh, and I think he's like criminally underread these days. Um, and I also always tell people to go back to Shirley Jackson. I mean, if you want like a beautiful, spooky story um, from someone who very likely was queer in her personal life, um, from what we know of it, uh, Shirley Jackson, I think, is the greatest horror writer of all time. And I think the Netflix adaptation is garbage. So you should go read <laughs> the actual novel from which it is based. Um, and I think those will get you through October pretty well. I love it. Some good spooky recommendations. Steve? This brings us to the end of our creator crash. Thank you so much for being on. Always a blast to have you. Is there anything else you'd like to plug specifically about where people can find you, what you got going on? I think we did a couple of good things, but what do you want to hit on? Let's just knock those out. Yeah, uh, stevefox.com, F-O-X-E. I keep that really updated. Um, It really does seem like Twitter is going to go any day now, but until (laughs) then, it is steve underscore fox, F-O-X-E, and I'll continue to post uh, all my new projects there. Awesome. As for us, we're on Twitter at Homo Superior X and on Instagram at Homo Superior Podcast. If there are any other great writers, artists, and all thing nerd culturistas you'd like to hear us chat with, make sure to slide into our DMs. We've been Homo Superior. Thank you so much, Steve Fox, and thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs>